Section 10 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 10. Litchfield and Utoxeter. After my first visit to Leamington Spa, I went by an indirect route to Litchfield and put up at the Black Swan. Had I known where to find it, I would much rather have established myself at the inn, formerly kept by the worthy Mr. Boniface, so famous for his ale in Farquhar's time. The Black Swan is an old-fashioned hotel, its street front being penetrated by an arched passage, in either side of which is an entrance door to the different parts of the house, and through which, and over the large stones of its pavement, all vehicles and horsemen rumble and clatter into an enclosed courtyard, with a thunderous uproar among the contiguous rooms and chambers. I appeared to be the only guest of the spacious establishment, but may have had a few fellow-lodgers hidden in their separate parlours, and utterly eschewing that community of interests which is the characteristic feature of life in an American hotel. At any rate, I had the great, dull, dingy, and dreary coffee-room, with its heavy old mahogany chairs and tables, all to myself, and not a soul to exchange a word with, except the waiter, who, like most of his class in England, had evidently left his conversational abilities uncultivated. No former practice of solitary living, nor habits of reticence, nor well-tested self-dependence for occupation of mind and amusement, can quite avail, as I now proved, to dissipate the ponderous gloom of an English coffee-room under such circumstances as these, with no book at hand save the county directory, nor any newspaper but a torn local journal of five days ago. So I buried myself betimes in a huge heap of ancient feathers, there is no other kind of bed in these old inns, let my head sink into an unsubstantial pillow, and slept a stifled sleep, infested with such fragmentary confusion of dreams, that I took them to be a medley, compounded of the night troubles, of all my predecessors in that same unrestful couch. And when I awoke, the musty odor of a bygone century was in my nostrils, a faint elusive smell, of which I never had any conception before crossing the Atlantic. In the morning, after a mutton-chop and a cup of chicory in the dusky coffee-room, I went forth and bewildered myself a little while among the crooked streets, in quest of one or two objects that had chiefly attracted me to the spot. The city is of very ancient date, and its name in the old Saxon tongue has a dismal import that would apply well in these days, and forever henceforward, to many an unhappy locality in our native land. Litchfield signifies the field of the dead bodies, an epithet, however, which the town did not assume in remembrance of a battle, but which probably sprung up by a natural process, like a sprig of rue or other funereal weed, out of the graves of two princely brothers, sons of a pagan king of Mercia, who were converted by St. Chad, and afterwards martyred for their Christian faith. Nevertheless, I was but little interested in the legends of the remote antiquity of Litchfield, being drawn thither partly to see its beautiful cathedral, and still more, I believe, because it was the birthplace of Dr. Johnson, 
with whose sturdy English character I became acquainted at a very early period of my life through the good offices of Mr. Boswell. In truth, he seems as familiar to my recollection, and almost as vivid in his personal aspect to my mind's eye, as the kindly figure of my own grandfather. It is only a solitary child, left much to such wild modes of culture as he chooses for himself, while yet ignorant what culture means, standing on tiptoe to pull down books from no very lofty shelf, and then shutting himself up, as it were, between the leaves, going astray through the volume at his own pleasure, and comprehending it rather by his sensibilities and affections than his intellect. That child is the only student that ever gets the sort of intimacy which I am now thinking of with a literary personage. I do not remember, indeed, ever caring much about any of the stalwart doctor's grandiloquent productions, except his two stern and masculine poems, London and The Vanity of Human Wishes. It was as a man, a talker, and a humorist that I knew and loved him, appreciating many of his qualities perhaps more thoroughly than I do now, though never seeking to put my instinctive perception of his character into language. Beyond all question, I might have had a wiser friend than he. The atmosphere in which alone he breathed was dense. His awful dread of death showed how much muddy imperfection was to be cleansed out of him before he could be capable of spiritual existence. He meddled only with the surface of life, and never cared to penetrate further than to plowshare depth. His very sense and sagacity were but a one-eyed clear-sightedness. I laughed at him, sometimes standing beside his knee. And yet, considering that my native propensities were towards fairyland, and also how much yeast is generally mixed up with the mental sustenance of a New Englander, it may not have been altogether amiss, in those childish and boyish days, to keep pace with this heavy-footed traveller, and feed on the gross diet that he carried in his knapsack. It is wholesome food even now. And then how English! Many of the latent sympathies that enabled me to enjoy the old country so well, and that so readily amalgamated themselves with the American ideas that seemed most adverse to them, may have been derived from, or fostered and kept alive by, the great English moralist. Never was a descriptive epithet more nicely appropriate than that. Dr. Johnson's morality was as English an article as a beefsteak. The city of Lichfield, only the cathedral towns are called cities in England, stands on an ascending site. It has not so many old gabled houses as Coventry, for example, but still enough to gratify an American appetite for the antiquities of domestic architecture. The people, too, have an old-fashioned way with them, and stare at the passing visitor, as if the railway had not yet quite accustomed them to the novelty of strange faces moving along their ancient sidewalks. The old women whom I met, in several instances, dropped me a curtsy, and as they were of decent and comfortable exterior, and kept quietly on their way without pause or further greeting, it certainly was not allowable to interpret their little act of respect as a modest method of asking for sixpence so that I had the pleasure of considering it a remnant of the reverential and hospitable manners of elder times, 
when the rare presence of a stranger might be deemed worth a general acknowledgment. Positively, coming from such humble sources, I took it all the more as a welcome on behalf of the inhabitants, and would not have exchanged it for an invitation from the mayor and magistrates to a public dinner. Yet I wish, merely for the experiment's sake, that I could have emboldened myself to hold out the aforesaid sixpence to at least one of the old ladies. In my wanderings about town, I came to an artificial piece of water called the Minster Pool. It fills the immense cavity in a ledge of rock, whence the building materials of the cathedral were quarried out a great many centuries ago. I should never have guessed the little lake to be of man's creation, so very pretty and quietly picturesque an object has it grown to be, with its green banks and the old trees hanging over its glassy surface, in which you may see reflected some of the battlements of the majestic structure that once lay here in unshaped stone. Some little children stood on the edge of the pool, angling with pin-hooks, and the scene reminded me, though really to be quite fair with the reader, the gist of the analogy has now escaped me, of that mysterious lake in the Arabian Nights, which had once been a palace and a city, and where a fisherman used to pull out the former inhabitants in the guise of enchanted fishes. There is no need of fanciful associations to make the spot interesting. It was in the porch of one of the houses, in the street that runs beside the Minster Pool, that Lord Brooke was slain, in the time of the Parliamentary War, by a shot from the battlements of the cathedral, which was then held by the Royalists as a fortress. The incident is commemorated by an inscription on a stone, inlaid into the wall of the house. I know not what rank the Cathedral of Lichfield holds among its sister edifices in England as a piece of magnificent architecture, except that of Chester, the grim and simple nave of which stands yet unrivaled in my memory, and one or two small ones in North Wales, hardly worthy of the name of cathedrals, it was the first that I had seen. To my uninstructed vision it seemed the object best worth gazing at in the whole world, and now, after beholding a great many more, I remember it with less prodigal admiration only because others are as magnificent as itself. The traces remaining in my memory represent it as airy rather than massive. A multitude of beautiful shapes appeared to be comprehended within its single outline. It was a kind of kaleidoscopic mystery. So rich a variety of aspects did it assume from each altered point of view, through the presentation of a different face, and the rearrangement of its peaks and pinnacles, and the three battlemented towers, with the spires that shot heavenward from all three, but one loftier than its fellows. Thus it impressed you at every change as a newly created surface of the passing moment, in which yet you lovingly recognized the half-vanished structure of the instant before, and felt, moreover, a joyful faith in the indestructible existence of all this cloud-like vicissitude. A Gothic cathedral is surely the most wonderful work which mortal man has yet achieved, so vast, so intricate, and so profoundly simple, with such strange, delightful recesses in its grand figure, so difficult to comprehend within one idea, and yet all so consonant 
that it ultimately draws the beholder and his universe into its harmony. It is the only thing in the world that is vast enough and rich enough. Not that I felt, or was worthy to feel, an unmingled enjoyment in gazing at this wonder. I could not elevate myself to its spiritual height, any more than I could have climbed from the ground to the summit of one of its pinnacles. Ascending but a little way, I continually fell back and lay in a kind of despair, conscious that a flood of uncomprehended beauty was pouring down upon me, of which I could appropriate only the minutest portion. After a hundred years, incalculably as my higher sympathies might be invigorated by so divine an employment, I should still be a gazer from below, and at an awful distance, as yet remotely excluded from the interior mystery. But it was something gained, even to have that painful sense of my own limitations, and that half-smothered yearning to soar beyond them. The cathedral showed me how earthly I was, but yet whispered deeply of immortality. After all, this was probably the best lesson that it could bestow, and, taking it as thoroughly as possible home to my heart, I was fain to be content. If the truth must be told, my ill-trained enthusiasm soon flagged, and I began to lose the vision of a spiritual or ideal edifice behind the time-worn and weather-stained front of the actual structure. Whenever that is the case, it is most reverential to look another way. But the mood disposes one to minute investigation, and I took advantage of it to examine the intricate and multitudinous adornment that was lavished on the exterior wall of this great church. Everywhere there were empty niches where statues had been thrown down, and here and there a statue still lingered in its niche, and over the chief entrance, and extending across the whole breadth of the building, was a row of angels, sainted personages, martyrs, and kings, sculptured in reddish stone. Being much corroded by the moist English atmosphere during four or five hundred winters that they had stood there, these benign and majestic figures perversely put me in mind of the appearance of a sugar image after a child has been holding it in his mouth. The venerable infant time has evidently found them sweet morsels. Inside of the minster there is a long and lofty nave, transepts of the same height, and side aisles and chapels, dim nooks of holiness, where in Catholic times the lamps were continually burning before the richly decorated shrines of saints. In the audacity of my ignorance, as I humbly acknowledge it to have been, I criticized this great interior as too much broken into compartments, and shorn of half its rightful impressiveness by the interposition of a screen betwixt the nave and chancel. It did not spread itself in breadth, but ascended to the roof in lofty narrowness. One large body of worshippers might have knelt down in the nave, others in each of the transepts, and smaller ones in the side aisles, besides an indefinite number of esoteric enthusiasts in the mysterious sanctities beyond the screen. Thus it seemed to typify the exclusiveness of sects rather than the worldwide hospitality of genuine religion. I had imagined a cathedral with a scope more vast, 
these gothic aisles with their groined arches overhead supported by clustered pillars in long vistas up and down were venerable and magnificent but included too much of the twilight of that monkish gloom out of which they grew it is no matter whether i ever came to a more satisfactory appreciation of this kind of architecture the only value of my strictures being to show the folly of looking at noble objects in the wrong mood and the absurdity of a new visitant pretending to hold any opinion whatever on such subjects instead of surrendering himself to the old builder's influence with childlike simplicity a great deal of white marble decorates the old stonework of the aisles in the shape of altars obelisks sarcophagi and busts most of these memorials are commemorative of people locally distinguished especially the deans and canons of the cathedral with their relatives and families and i found but two monuments of personages whom i had ever heard of one being gilbert wansley and the other lady mary wortley montague a literary acquaintance of my boyhood it was really pleasant to meet her there for after a friend has lain in the grave far into the second century she would be unreasonable to require any melancholy emotions in a chance interview at her tombstone it adds a rich charm to sacred edifices this time-honored custom of burial in churches after a few years at least when the mortal remains have turned to dust beneath the pavement and the quaint devices and inscriptions still speak to you above the statues that stood or reclined in several recesses of the cathedral had a kind of life and i regarded them with an odd sort of deference as if they were privileged denizens of the precinct it was singular too how the memorial of the latest buried person the man whose features went familiar in the streets of lichfield only yesterday seemed precisely as much at home here as his medieval predecessors henceforward he belonged in the cathedral like one of its original pillars methought this impression in my fancy might be the shadow of a spiritual fact the dying melt into the great multitude of the departed as quietly as a drop of water into the ocean and it may be our conscious of no unfamiliarity with their new circumstances but immediately become aware of an insufferable strangeness in the world which they have quitted death has not taken them away but brought them home the vicissitudes and mischances of sublunary affairs however have not ceased to attend upon these marble inhabitants for i saw the upper fragment of a sculptured lady in a very old-fashioned garb the lower half of whom had doubtless been demolished by cromwell's soldiers when they took the minster by storm and there lies the remnant of this devout lady on her slab ever since the outrage as for centuries before with a countenance of divine serenity and her hands clasped in prayer symbolizing a depth of religious faith which no earthly turmoil or calamity could disturb another piece of sculpture apparently a favorite subject in the middle ages for i have seen several like it in other cathedrals was a reclining skeleton as faithfully representing an open work of bones as could well be expected in a solid block of marble and at a period moreover when the mysteries of the human frame were rather to be guessed at than revealed whatever the anatomical defects of his production the old sculptor had succeeded in making it ghastly beyond measure 
how much mischief has been wrought upon us by this invariable gloom of the gothic imagination flinging itself like a death-scented pall over our conceptions of the future state smothering our hopes hiding our sky and inducing dismal efforts to raise the harvest of immortality out of what is most opposite to it the grave the cathedral service is performed twice every day at ten o'clock and at four when i first entered the choristers young and old but mostly i think boys with voices inexpressibly sweet and clear and as fresh as bird notes were just winding up their harmonious labors and soon came thronging through a side door from the chancel into the nave they were all dressed in long white robes and looked like a peculiar order of beings created on purpose to hover between the roof and pavement of that dim consecrated edifice and illuminate it with divine melodies reposing themselves meanwhile on the heavy grandeur of the organ tones like cherubs on a golden cloud all at once however one of the cherubic multitude pulled off his white gown thus transforming himself before my very eyes into a commonplace youth of the day in modern frock-coat and trousers of a decidedly provincial cut this absurd little incident i verily believe had a sinister effect in putting me at odds with the proper influences of the cathedral nor could i quite recover a suitable frame of mind during my stay there but emerging into the open air i began to be sensible that i had left a magnificent interior behind me and I have never quite lost the perception and enjoyment of it in these intervening years. A large space in the immediate neighborhood of the cathedral is called the Close, and comprises beautifully kept lawns and a shadowy walk bordered by the dwellings of the ecclesiastical dignitaries of the diocese. All this row of episcopal, canonical, and clerical residences has an air of the deepest quiet, repose, and well-protected though not inaccessible seclusion they seemed capable of including everything that a saint could desire and a great many more things than most of us sinners generally succeed in acquiring their most marked feature is a dignified comfort looking as if no disturbance or vulgar intrusiveness could ever cross their thresholds encroach upon their ornamented lawns or straggle into the beautiful gardens that surround them with flower-beds and rich clumps of shrubbery the episcopal palace is a stately mansion of stone built somewhat in the italian style and bearing on its front the figures sixteen thirty seven as the date of its erection a large edifice of brick which if i remember stood next to the palace i took to be the residence of the second dignitary of the cathedral and in that case it must have been the youthful home of addison whose father was the dean of lichfield I tried to fancy his figure on the delightful walk that extends in front of those priestly abodes, from which, and the interior lawns, it is separated by an open-work iron fence, lined with a rich old shrubbery, and overarched by a minster aisle of venerable trees. This path is haunted by the shades of famous personages who have formerly trodden it. Johnson must have been familiar with it, both as a boy, and in his subsequent visits to Lichfield, an illustrious old man. Miss Seward, connected with so many literary reminiscences, lived in one of the adjacent houses. 
tradition says that it was a favorite spot of Major Andre, who used to pace to and fro under these trees, waiting, perhaps, to catch a last angel glimpse of Honoria Sood, before he crossed the ocean to encounter his dismal doom from an American court-martial. David Garrick, no doubt, scampered along the path in his boyish days, and if he was an early student of the drama, must often have thought of those two airy characters of the Bow's stratagem, Archer and Aimwell, who, on this very ground, after attending service at the cathedral, contrived to make acquaintance with the ladies of the comedy. These creatures of mere fiction have as positive a substance now as the sturdy old figure of Johnson himself. They live while realities have died. The shadowy walk still glistens with their gold-embroidered memories. Seeking for Johnson's birthplace, I found it in St. Mary's Square, which is not so much a square as the mere widening of a street. The house is tall and thin, of three stories, with a square front and roof rising steep and high. On a side view the building looks as if it had been cut in two in the midst, there being no slope of the roof on that side. A ladder slanted against the wall, and a painter was giving a livelier line to the plaster. In a corner room of the basement, where old Michael Johnson may be supposed to have sold books, is now what we should call a dry-goods store, or, according to the English phrase, a mercer's and haberdasher's shop. The house has a private entrance on a cross street, the door being accessible by several much-worn stone steps, which are bordered by an iron balustrade. I set my foot on the steps and laid my hand on the balustrade, where Johnson's hand and foot must many a time have been, and, ascending to the door, I knocked once, and again, and again, and got no admittance. Going round to the shop entrance, I tried to open it, but found it fast bolted as the gate of paradise. It is mortifying to be so balked in one's little enthusiasms, but, looking round in quest of somebody to make inquiries of, I was a good deal consoled by the sight of Dr. Johnson himself, who happened, just at that moment, to be sitting at his case nearly in the middle of St. Mary's Square, with his face turned towards his father's house. Of course, it being almost fourscore years since the doctor laid aside his weary bulk of flesh, together with the ponderous melancholy that had so long weighed him down, the intelligent reader will at once comprehend that he was marble in his substance, and seated in a marble chair on an elevated stone pedestal. In short, it was a statue, sculptured by Lucas, and placed here in 1838, at the expense of Dr. Law, the Reverend Chancellor of the Diocese. The figure is colossal, though perhaps not much more so than the mountainous doctor himself, and looks down upon the spectator from its pedestal of ten or twelve feet high, with a broad and heavy benignity of aspect, very like in feature to Sir Joshua Reynolds' portrait of Johnson, but calmer and sweeter in expression. Several big books are piled up beneath his chair, and, if I mistake not, he holds a volume in his hand, thus blinking forth at the world out of his learned abstraction, owl-like, yet benevolent at heart. The statue is immensely massive, a vast ponderosity of stone, not finely spiritualized nor, indeed, fully humanized, 
but rather resembling a great stone bolder than a man. You must look with the eyes of faith and sympathy, or possibly you might lose the human being altogether, and find only a big stone within your mental grasp. On the pedestal are three bas-reliefs. In the first, Johnson is represented as hardly more than a baby, bestriding an old man's shoulders, resting his chin on the bald head which he embraces with his little arms, and listening earnestly to the high church eloquence of Dr. Satchverell. In the second tablet, he is seen riding to school on the shoulders of two of his comrades, while another boy supports him in the rear. The third bas-relief possesses, to my mind, a great deal of pathos, to which my appreciative faculty is probably the more alive, because I have always been profoundly impressed by the incident here commemorated, and long ago tried to tell it for the behoof of childish readers. It shows Johnson in the market-place of Utoxeter, doing penance for an act of disobedience to his father, committed fifty years before. He stands bareheaded, a venerable figure, and a countenance extremely sad and woebegone, with the wind and rain driving hard against him, and thus helping to suggest to the spectator the gloom of his inward state. Some market-people and children gaze awe-stricken into his face, and an aged man and woman, with clasped and uplifted hands, seem to be praying for him. These latter personages, whose introduction by the artist is none the less effective, because, in queer proximity, there are some commodities of market-day in the shape of living ducks and dead poultry, I interpreted to represent the spirits of Johnson's father and mother, lending what aid they could to lighten his half-century's burden of remorse. I had never heard of the above-described piece of sculpture before. It appears to have no reputation as a work of art, nor am I at all positive that it deserves any. For me, however, it did as much as sculpture could, under the circumstances, even if the artist of the Libyan Sibyl had wrought it, by reviving my interest in the sturdy old Englishman, and particularly by freshening my perception of a wonderful beauty and pathetic tenderness in the incident of the penance. So, the next day, I left Litchfield for Utoxeter, on one of the few purely sentimental pilgrimages that I ever undertook, to see the very spot where Johnson had stood. Boswell, I think, speaks of the town, its name is pronounced Utoxeter, as being about nine miles off from Litchfield, but the county map would indicate a greater distance, and by rail, passing from one line to another, it is as much as eighteen miles. I have always had an idea of old Michael Johnson sending his literary merchandise by carrier's wagon, journeying to Utoxeter afoot on market-day morning, selling books through the busy hours, and returning to Litchfield at night. This could not possibly have been the case. Arriving at the Utoxeter station, the first objects that I saw, with a green field or two between them and me, were the tower and grey steeple of a church, rising among red-tiled roofs and a few scattered trees. A very short walk takes you from the station up into the town. It had been my previous impression that the market-place of Utoxeter lay immediately round about the church, and, if I remember the narrative aright, Johnson, or Boswell in his behalf, describes his father's bookstall as standing in the market-place close beside the sacred edifice. 
It is impossible for me to say what changes may have occurred in the topography of the town, during almost a century and a half since Michael Johnson retired from business, and ninety years at least since his son's penance was performed. But the church has now merely a street of ordinary width passing around it, while the market-place, though near at hand, neither forms a part of it, nor is really contiguous, nor would its throng and bustle be apt to overflow their boundaries, and surge against the churchyard and the old grey tower. Nevertheless, a walk of a minute or two brings a person from the centre of the market-place to the church-door, and Michael Johnson might very conveniently have located his stall, and laid out his literary ware, in the corner at the tower's base. Better there, indeed, than in the busy centre of an agricultural market. But the picturesque arrangement and full impressiveness of the story absolutely require that Johnson shall not have done his penance in a corner, ever so little retired, but shall have been the very nucleus of the crowd, the midmost man of the market-place, a central image of memory and remorse, contrasting with and overpowering the petty materialism around him. He himself, having the force to throw vitality and truth into what persons differently constituted might reckon a mere external ceremony, and an absurd one, could not have failed to see this necessity. I am resolved, therefore, that the true sight of Dr. Johnson's penance was in the middle of the market-place. That important portion of the town is a rather spacious and irregularly shaped vacuity, surrounded by houses and shops, some of them old with red-tiled roofs, others wearing a pretense of newness, but probably as old in their inner substance as the rest. The people of Utoxeter seemed very idle in the warm summer day, and were scattered in little groups along the sidewalks, leisurely chatting with one another, and often turning about to take a deliberate stare at my humble self, insomuch that I felt as if my genuine sympathy for the illustrious penitent, and my many reflections about him, must have imbued me with some of his own singularity of mien. If their great-grandfathers were such redoubtable starers in the doctor's day, his penance was no light one. This curiosity indicates a paucity of visitors to the little town, except for market purposes, and I question if Utoxeter ever saw an American before. The only other thing that greatly impressed me was the abundance of public-houses, one at every step or two, red lions, white hearts, bulls' heads, mitres, cross-keys, and I know not what besides. They are probably for the accommodation of the farmers and peasantry of the neighborhood on market-day, and content themselves with a very meagre business on other days of the week. At any rate, I was the only guest in Utoxeter at the period of my visit, and had but an infinitesimal portion of patronage to distribute among such a multitude of inns. The reader, however, will possibly be scandalized to learn what was the first, and, indeed, the only important affair that I attended to, after coming so far to indulge a solemn and high emotion, and standing now on the very spot where my pious errand should have been consummated. I stepped into one of the rustic hostelries and got my dinner—bacon and greens, some mutton-chops, 
juicier and more delectable than all America could serve up at the President's table, and a gooseberry pudding, a sufficient meal for six yeomen, and good enough for a prince, besides a pitcher of foaming ale, the whole at the pitiful small charge of eighteen pence. Dr. Johnson would have forgiven me, for nobody had a heartier faith in beef and mutton than himself. And as regards my lack of sentiment in eating my dinner, it was the wisest thing I had done that day. A sensible man had better not let himself be betrayed into these attempts to realize the things which he has dreamed about, and which, when they cease to be purely ideal in his mind, will have lost the truest of their truth, the loftiest and profoundest part of their power over his sympathies. Facts, as we really find them, whatever poetry they may involve, are covered with a stony excrescence of prose, resembling the crust on a beautiful sea-shell, and they never show their most delicate and divinest colors until we shall have dissolved away their grosser actualities by steeping them long in powerful menstruum of thought. And seeking to actualize them again, we do but renew the crust. If this were otherwise, if the moral sublimity of a great fact depended in any degree on its garb of external circumstances, things which change and decay, it could not itself be immortal and ubiquitous, and only a brief point of time and a little neighborhood would be spiritually nourished by its grandeur and beauty. Such were a few of the reflections which I mingled with my ale, as I remember to have seen an old quaffer of that excellent liquor stir up his cup with the sprig of some bitter and fragrant herb. Meanwhile I found myself still haunted by a desire to get a definite result out of my visit to Utoxeter. The hospitable inn was called the Nag's Head, and standing beside the market-place was as likely as any other to have entertained old Michael Johnson in the days when he used to come hither to sell books. He, perhaps, had dined on bacon and greens, and drunk his ale, and smoked his pipe, in the very room where I now sat, which was a low, ancient room, certainly much older than Queen Anne's time, with a red-brick floor and a whitewashed ceiling, traversed by bare, rough beams, the whole in the rudest fashion, but extremely neat. Neither did it lack ornament, the walls being hung with colored engravings of prize oxen and other pretty prints, and the mantelpiece adorned with earthenware figures of shepherdesses in the Arcadian taste of long ago. Michael Johnson's eyes might have rested on that self-same earthen image, to examine which more closely I had just crossed the brick pavement of the room. And sitting down again, still as I sipped my ale, I glanced through the open window into the sunny market-place, and wished that I could honestly fix on one spot rather than another, as likely to have been the holy site where Johnson stood to do his penance. How strange and stupid it is that tradition should not have marked and kept in mind the very place! How shameful, nothing less than that, that there should be no local memorial of this incident, as beautiful and touching a passage as can be cited out of any human life, no inscription of it, almost as sacred as a verse of scripture on the wall of the church, no statue of the venerable and illustrious penitent in the market-place to throw a wholesome awe over its earthliness, 
its frauds and petty wrongs of which the benumbed fingers of conscience can make no record, its selfish competition of each man with his brother or his neighbor, its traffic of soul-substance for a little worldly gain. Such a statue, if the piety of the people did not raise it, might almost have been expected to grow up out of the pavement of its own accord on the spot that had been watered by the rain that dripped from Johnson's garment, mingled with his remorseful tears. Long after my visit to Utoxeter, I was told that there were individuals in the town who could have shown me the exact, indubitable spot where Johnson performed his penance. I was assured, moreover, that sufficient interest was felt in the subject to have induced certain local discussions as to the expediency of erecting a memorial. With all deference to my polite informant, I surmise that there is a mistake, and decline without further and precise evidence giving credit to either of the above statements. The inhabitants know nothing as a matter of general interest about the penance, and care nothing for the scene of it. If the clergyman of the parish, for example, had ever heard of it, would he not have used the theme, time and again, wherewith to work tenderly and profoundly on the souls committed to his charge? If parents were familiar with it, would they not teach it to their young ones at the fireside, both to ensure reverence to their own gray hairs, and to protect the children from such unavailing regrets as Johnson bore upon his heart for fifty years? If the site were ascertained, would not the pavement thereabouts be worn with reverential footsteps? Would not every town-born child be able to direct the pilgrim thither? While waiting at the station before my departure, I asked a boy who stood near me, an intelligent and gentlemanly lad, twelve or thirteen years old, whom I should take to be a clergyman's son, I asked him if he had ever heard of the story of Dr. Johnson, how he stood an hour doing penance near that church, the spire of which rose before us. The boy stared and answered, No. Were you born in Utoxeter? Yes. I inquired if no circumstance such as I had mentioned was known or talked about among the inhabitants. No, said the boy, not that I ever heard of. Just think of the absurd little town, knowing nothing of the only memorable incident which ever happened within its boundaries since the old Britons built it, this sad and lovely story which consecrates the spot for I found it wholly to my contemplation, again, as soon as it lay behind me, in the heart of a stranger from three thousand miles over the sea. It but confirms what I have been saying, that sublime and beautiful facts are best understood when etherealized by distance. End of section 10